Have you ever thought about how friendly you are? Or how your self-domestication is coming along? And what if kids, not adults, males or females, swayed the tides of power ranking in society? For answers to those and many more questions about who apes like us really are, we'll be visiting this time on Talking Apes with Dr. Brian Hare, who's been looking at our modern ape cousins, the bonobos, for clues. He's also been digging through the cognitive closet of our hominid past for what treasures that might reveal. Dr. Hare is a professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University. There he researches the evolution of cognition by looking both at us and our closest primate cousins, the great apes. His quest to understand us has taken him from the steamy hearts of Africa's Congo rainforests to the chilly hinterlands of Siberia. I'm Jerry Ellis, and you're listening to Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is a podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by a generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at G-L-O-B-I-O dot O-R-G. Dr. Hare, welcome to Talking Apes. Thank you. It's so fun to be with you. You know, I have to admit my, the friendlier ape in me um, wants to just call you Brian. So I, I hope that's okay because I, I feel like from reading your books, from uh, watching the, the TED Talks and the videos that you and, and your partner Vanessa Woods have done, I, I feel like I've known you for a few years. You're welcome to call me Brian. No problem. You know, I have to admit, my, the friendlier ape in me um, wants to just call you Brian. So I, I, I think, you know, we both share this passion for, for apes. And that's why this show is called Talking Apes. It's as much us as it is any of the other apes that are out there in the world. Well, it's exciting to be on a show dedicated to such a cool topic. So, you know, to be honest, when uh, we first started thinking about uh, having a guest on in February, this is World Bonobo Month. I reached out to a mutual friend of ours, uh, Richard Rangham at Harvard, and without hesitation, he said, call Brian at Duke. Now, I, I don't know if he was just trying to, to get you back for being a you know a rotten student or something, but uh, anyway, he really <laughs> did feel like you were the person to talk to when it came to bonobos. Well, I mean, it's uh, largely Richard's fault, any success that I had uh, working with bonobos, um, because not only did Richard um, sort of inspire uh, the connection between some of the previous work I've been doing on uh, chimpanzee cognition and bonobo cognition, uh, but he also sort of said, uh, look, if you're going to make big advances, you need to go to Africa and work in uh, some of the sanctuaries there for uh, orphans of the bushmeat trade. And I ended up going with Richard uh, to Lola Yabonobo. He took me personally to Lola Yabonobo, uh, which is the sanctuary in Kinshasa uh, where we did all of our research and he helped um, us make that connection and build that link. And so it really is his fault. <laughs> well, you know, he's, he's, he's actually an amazingly humble guy and uh, speaking, it, you know, talking about uh, 
friendly people. Um, he he never mentioned a word about taking you to to the Congo. And in, in going through, especially your your latest books, um, you know, survival of the friendliest. There's so much work that you've been doing around cognition, self uh, domestication, and and all of those things. And I, I want to get into that um, because it's it's incredibly fascinating, and especially. It fits right in with the, the sort of the parent, I guess, to this this program, Talking Apes, and that's apes like us. And so I want to dive into that. But before we get there, maybe you could explain to those who are just tuning in, what are bonobos? Why? Where did you and Vanessa and now Richard, I guess, have to go to to see them, and why? First of all, the most exciting thing to learn about bonobos is that they are the only great ape that has never been observed to kill another individual of their own kind. Um, and if that doesn't hook you to want to learn more about them, I don't know what will. And so then everything else I tell you is to help us get to the point where we can understand how could it be that these amazing beings we share the planet with never murder. Um, and what makes it remarkable is that they are one of our two closest uh, living primate relatives. Um, it's like having two cousins. Um, we obviously, everybody knows about chimpanzees being our closest primate relative, um, but not as many people are familiar that we actually have two closest relatives because how can you have two closest relatives? Um, you know, we all think hierarchically there can only be one number one. Um, well, actually, when it comes to relatives, you can have two or three or five closest relatives. Um, and so in the case of uh, our own family, chimpanzees and bonobos are like having first cousins. One's a girl, one's a boy. They're both your first cousin, but they're different from each other. So they're equally related to you. They're different from each other. Um, and that's why we have two closest uh, relatives. And chimpanzees and bonobos are extremely closely rela related to each other um, because they have a common ancestor that was like a parent uh, ancestor to the two of them. Uh, and um, that common ancestor uh, uh, separated from our own lineage uh, and probably around uh, 7 million years ago, let's say. So, so if you think about it as more like a genealogy of a family, um, instead of like a hierarchy, uh, bonobos being our closest relative together with chimpanzees makes more sense. So then this mystery of the fact that they've never been observed to kill uh, becomes even more perplexing given that uh, what we know about chimpanzees now is that chimpanzees uh, commit infanticide, so they will occasionally um, kill infants uh, of neighboring groups or even of their own group. Uh, they have been observed to kill uh, neighboring uh, uh, members, adult members, um, whether it's males or females. They uh, have these very violent intergroup interactions. And in captivity, where I tend to work, um, putting strange chimpanzees together is incredibly, incredibly stressful on the chimpanzees and the people who are trying to manage the situation because they're so xenophobic. They're so scared and afraid and aggressive towards strangers. And so then to tell you that one of our two closest relatives is not only not xenophobic, they are what is known as xenophilic. They're attracted to strangers. They want to be near strangers and they actually want to be friendly and have affiliative relationships. Um, it's shocking that uh, these nearly uh, genetically indistinguishable species have such a different response to strangers and yet they're our closest living primate relative, uh, given our track record uh, with intergroup hostility 
how do we explain the fact that bonobos can do something we can't? Okay, there's there's like 12 why questions in that <laughs> what, what you just said. It's like, okay, so let's let's see if we can unpack that just just a little bit. Um the the thing that I was fascinated Maybe let's start in another place. As we we were talking earlier, and I, I said, you, you know, you wrote you and Vanessa wrote this piece that was in Scientific America last August that was sort of a, I guess, an abbreviated version of, of what's in in the book, The Friendliest. And you start with, we are the only humans being on Earth right at the moment, but not so long ago, we had a lot of company. Let's start there. Tell me that story, and then... As we go, maybe we can unpack that connection to bonobos. No, that's great because, you know, from a scientific perspective, that's kind of the ultimate goal of, you know, you're trying to understand these wonderfully complicated animals for the, for the, just understanding them, their own intrinsic value of understanding how they operate. But what's so amazing about uh, all the research with great apes is it teaches us so much about ourselves. And so going back to that original, uh, story of the big surprising finding in the last 10, 15 years uh, in the study of human evolution is that we were not alone on this planet till very, very recently. Um, and uh, it's probably 25 to 50,000 years ago, um, somewhere in that ballpark that we became the lone human species. Um, before that, there were uh, one to five other human species that we shared the planet with. Uh, they all had language uh, or linguistic capabilities that we probably would recognize. They all had culture. Uh, they all had cultural traditions and created artifacts and technology, and they all had big brains. Uh, many of those species had brains the same size as our own. Those are usually the explanations we would uh, try to, you know, use to say, you know, this is what makes humans different from other animals. We have big brains. We, we have linguistic abilities. We have culture. Um, and that's why we are so successful. Um, well, when you come to the stunning realization that uh, literally four or five other species that meet those criteria went extinct, what you realize is that culture, language, big brains predicts extinction. It doesn't predict success. So then you sit there scratching your head. Well, then why are we still here? And what was it about us that allowed us to survive and be so successful, if not? But that almost seems to like spit in the face of everything we've been told and taught. If, I mean, if if we have if there's five of us floating around and we all have language, we all have culture, and we all have, you know, all of those things that we think of as being quote civilized, you know, evolved creatures. Where the hell are those other four? Yeah, right. Right. What happened to them? Because I thought all you needed was big brain culture and some kind of language skill and you can, you know, dominate the planet. And the answer is uh, apparently not because the majority of species that had those capabilities are now gone and they've long been extinct. So, so the, um, you know, 25, 50,000 years ago, they were gone. So how, how do we make it? And so this is where um, work with bonobos has been really enlightening and helpful because um, when you take a step back and you ask a question, when you look at life and you all life and you say, you know, what is the strategy that leads to major evolutionary advances? What, what, what takes a class of organisms or a specific organism 
from sort of doing okay, but we don't know if you're going to be around anymore, to just absolutely taking off and sort of uh, dominating at the game of life. Well, most people, their first thing when I say dominating the game of life, they're going to go to survival of the fittest. Oh, of course, it's survival of the fittest. It's the biggest, the strongest, the meanest whether it's a group of you know individuals or a type of organism that can just dominate others and and um, you know uh, win win win, so it's a little bit surprising what I'm going to say next, which is that actually when you take the step back and you look at life and you say where did those big jumps happen, it is always the case that those big jumps happen when there's an increase in friendliness that leads to a new form of cooperation, and I can walk you through some great examples. Um, and that's where the title of our book and our article uh, came from, Survival of the Friendliest, because it's really friendliness that's the winning strategy, and you win big in life with friendliness. So uh, examples would be anything from the uh, relationship between flowering plants, which actually are a, a newer type of plant, um, where they make a deal. They say, look, we're going to give you something. We're going to be friendly to you. Uh, we're going to give you, offer you some energy. Uh, in exchange that you take this uh, really light uh, package and share it with others of my kind. Uh, and not only do you have them spread everywhere and start dominating from this friendliness, uh, you have this new form of cooperation that allows for all sorts of diversity that didn't exist before. Which really makes me think of Michael Pollan and his book, Botany of Desire. I mean, that's exactly that concept that yeah, if I'm a tasty apple, you'll take me everywhere and spread me everywhere. Exactly. So it's a type of friendliness. Another type of friendliness, uh, one of my other favorite examples is thinking about the only terrestrial vertebrate that lives year-round in Antarctica. It is the penguin. And how do they do it? Well, they have evolved a new type of friendliness, which is basically hugging and, and, and cuddling all winter. Um, and everybody's familiar, uh, probably in your audience, with birds on the telephone wire who they space themselves, and they don't want to sit too close, and there's always a distance. And you know, getting on the subway, you know, or any kind of you know public transit, you always leave that seat open before you take the, you know, that's not what penguins do. They smash into each other, they hug and huddle, and they love to be close, even though they're perfect strangers with each other, and that keeps them warm and allows them to survive where no other species can. So a type of friendliness evolves that allows them to dominate in a way that no other animal can in that very hostile environment. Another final example would be um, the cleaner wrasse. So these are the fish that clean the mouths of uh, other fish. So they should be afraid of the predators that they're cleaning the mouths of. They should swim away from them. But instead, they swim towards them. And not only do they swim towards them in a friendly manner, they go into their mouths. How stupid can you be? But it ends up that this friendliness is rewarded with the predators not eating them, and they get to feed on all the parasites that are in the mouth of the predator. So this new type of friendliness evolves that allows for a new type of cooperation, and this fish has flourished as a result, and obviously the predator that they clean the fish, uh, their, their mouths of, uh, flourished as well. So... So friendliness really is an incredibly successful strategy, and bonobos are a product of this same force. So as, as, as somebody who's you know, passionate about apes and, and spent a lot of time um, in, in places like the Congo filming chimps and gorillas and, and bonobos and whatever, the question is, why not chimps? 
why why bonobos only? There's some physical things we know about them. I mean, they're separated from, you know, but the Congo River has separated them to the south and they're isolated and, and so forth. I don't know. You, you could tell me maybe if, if that's had any influence on them over time. But that's, I mean, that's your first question, or my first question, I guess, is why not? Why aren't there isolated groups of chimps that have become friendlier? Yeah, well, I, you know, I don't want to... Steal Richard Wrangham's thunder because you can. You know, he he would love to talk to you about his new idea, um, which is uh, that it is true. Yes, bonobos became isolated south of the Congo River. Um, chimpanzees only live north of the Congo River. Um, when you have a physical separation like that, that um, uh, doesn't allow for reproduction to continue, then you have the chance for um, speciation or different species to evolve. Um, but that's that's not relevant to your question about, yeah, but why did the bonobos become friendly and the chimpanzees didn't become friendlier? Richard's answer would actually be they did. Uh, they just became friendlier. They became friendlier in West Africa. Um, it's the East African and the central chimpanzees and, that are um, particularly um, uh, sort of non-friendly to strangers and have, uh, you know, the, the most extreme version of despotism whereas west african chimpanzees are a little bit more towards the bonobo uh in terms of their behavioral profile um so this is a new argument i'm not saying that you know this is embraced by all but this is a new thing that richard has made the case for um so in in terms of bonobos the thinking is though that anytime friendliness uh begins to be favored in evolution um there's sort of a cost-benefit ratio that flips. Um, and it seems really counterintuitive until you just think about the economics. Because everybody thinks, oh, wouldn't it always be better to be bigger and aggressive? Well, maybe. It depends on the economics of it. And, uh, you know, in biology, economics, you just replace another E word, ecology. Um, and so uh, the thinking is that um, that I think is sometimes lost because, you know, when, why wouldn't you want to always be big and bad and alpha? Um, I think part of what gets lost is the fact that it's costly to be on top. Uh, you need a really good immune system to deal with any injuries you're going to have. So you have to spend a lot more of your energy staying healthy. You're also at much uh, greater risk to being injured, maybe even mortally, which means that, you know, you're not going to be able to reproduce if you're dead. Um, and so uh, and then, you know, everybody's gunning for you. There's a lot of energy to police and, you know, try to get everybody under control, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of cost. And so if the, if, if the benefit of being alpha and uh, despotic isn't paying off uh, such that you can um, offset all those costs, well, all of a sudden, boom, friendliness becomes uh, much more beneficial evolutionarily. It's going to be the, the path or the strategy that's going to be favored because if the cost of being the big bad alpha uh, it's so costly that you can't reproduce faster than an individual who's super friendly, you're out of luck. And so there's a lot of uh, context ecologically where that happens. And so um, that's what we think happened in the case of bonobos. And Richard's making that argument uh, for West African chimpanzees too. Um, so in the case of bonobos, the thinking is that something ecologically uh, made it far more beneficial to be for males in particular to be friendlier um, towards uh, strangers, towards females, towards the infants of females, um, and uh, basically the cost of being aggressive and trying to dominate no longer could be um, uh, overcome. 
So the friendliest males were the ones that won out. Uh, and so then the question becomes, okay, well, yeah, but like, what was the ecological factor that shifted that um, uh, payoff scheme? Uh, well, I mean, we have ideas, we've, and I can tell you some of the ideas and some of the tests, but I just want to reassure everybody that uh, there, this has happened many, many times in evolution that friendliness becomes beneficial. Uh, one example is, uh, another example is your dog, your pet dog. We, we know that dogs evolved through a process of friendliness paying off as wolves who are friendlier towards humans won the day. So there's many, many examples where the ecology shifts and friendliness pays off big. Do, do we know exactly for sure in the case of bonobos? No, but it's not like this is some isolated random case. Um, so one of the ideas uh, for what favored friendliness is uh, that basically there was more food available that was more predictable. Um, and that may be because bonobos evolved without competing with gorillas. It also may be that the forest south of the Congo River uh, was just more predictable in, in what it was producing a million to two, two million years ago when the species started to diverge. Um, we've tested this actually, believe it or not, but in a, in a, but in a, in a counterintuitive way. Um, so my own research group, um, we, we said, well, wait a second. If uh, the ecology a million to two million years ago was more predictable for bonobos and less predictable for chimpanzees, then that suggests that how they make decisions about feeding, economic decisions about feeding, should be different between the two species. Bonobos should be really risk averse. Chimpanzees should be really risk prone. And that should, that the signature of their feeding ecology from a million to two million years ago should be reflected in their feeding preferences today because the individuals who had risk aversion in bonobos would have been more likely to survive and the ones that were risk prone in chimpanzee land would have been more likely to survive. And the idea is when you're risk averse, if you're surrounded by food that's predictable, why would you take risks? Just eat the food. Chimpanzees, where it's more unpredictable, you're going to have to take risks because you're, you know, some days if you don't take the risk, you're not going to make it. Um, and so that's exactly what we found. We played some games, some economic games that played with people, really. And we were able to show that bonobos are risk averse in a way that uh, chimpanzees are not and that chimpanzees are much more risk prone when making decisions about uh, what they're going to eat. Um, and so this seems to be the psychological signature of the southern, uh, south of the Congo River being more predictable, even though we can't go in a time machine and measure the plants and the, you know, uh, the food availability, it seems to be that there's a psychological signature that that ecology really was different. Is there any tie to that and what, uh, what we're seeing in West Africa and, and this precipitating Richard's thinking about why, I mean, I think, I think it's really important to point out to, to folks listening is that evolution isn't static. We tend to think of it in a very, you know, homocentric way and look at it, go, oh, well, all this stuff evolved to now. And it kind of has come to a halt. But I think what was fascinating about just thinking about all the work that you've been doing, listening to some of the other, you know, TED Talks and other things that you've, you've done is this idea that there were four or five of us around, you know, 80, 100,000 years ago. The fact that there has been this this movement, and there's parts of that that I, I would love to to chat about. It in, in you mentioned dogs and that whole idea of 
you know, floppy eardness, you know, curly tails, uh, the sort of infantile facial structures. I mean, we, I mean, maybe the, the best classic example of that is in cartoons. It's, it's the evolution of Mickey Mouse from being a very rat-like cartoon to the very baby-like Mickey Mouse that we have now. Um, it just, over the years, there's this constant progression towards being more and more infantile. Just like, uh, you know, I can't stop this from falling because of gravity, uh, evolution is working right now and you can't stop it. Um, uh, you know, my favorite example of this is just to talk about um, uh, self-domestication currently right now. And that is what I mean by self-domestication is that organisms like coyotes, like deer, uh, you know, other wild animals that are increasingly approaching and being attracted to human settlements. In fact, the densest human settlements are the most attractive environments for these organisms now because they're not being killed by people. Uh, there's tons of food. And so where there used to be fear, it's being replaced with an attraction. Um, and so that evolution is happening right now. And uh, the individuals that are attracted and losing their fear, there's likely selection uh, that's gonna lead to changes, not just to that behavior, but also to other parts of their body like we see in other domesticated animals. So the prediction is that we're gonna see curly tailed coyotes uh, and they might have some white spots on them uh, in a hundred years. Um, so it is not uh, the case at all that evolution stops. Uh, and it is absolutely the case that um, our species somehow outcompeted uh, species relatively recently. And bonobos sort of give us a hint because um, we talked about how something happened in that cost benefit relationship where friendliness starts to pay. We have the psychological signature that bonobos prefer uh, things that are more predictable when they make decisions about food. Um, they don't like risk, they avoid it. Whereas chimpanzees love risk. If you run a, a casino, you'd be happy if a whole bunch of chimps ran in because uh, they are definitely gonna go for it. Um, so they're, they're, you know, they're gonna be on the roulette table the whole night. So, the, so, so what's sort of the, the final cherry on the top is that two field sites where people have measured uh, the baby's uh, parentage in these wild bonobos have been able to demonstrate that the most successful male bonobo has had more offspring than the most successful male chimpanzees. So friendly bonobo males that have never been observed to kill, that don't have any intergroup aggression, never attack females uh, in a way that would lead to serious injury, uh, they actually have more babies than the most successful alpha dominant despotic killer chimpanzees. Um, so it really is the case that friendliness wins, it pays off in reproduction, uh, and bonobos are case in point. And it's probably a big start, a big part of our own species success as we outcompeted all those other humans. That, that's really interesting. And it, and it brings me to a question I wanted to ask you that, um, that you had in Survival of the Friendliest, and that was talking about the kids of bonobos. Yeah, so, so, so uh, one of the most striking things that happens when you're with bonobos, I think, uh, in captivity, interacting with them in a way that you can't see through just observation when you see wild bonobos and you can't miss it when you interact with them is that if for some reason you do something that scares a baby bonobo 
by accident. You know, a baby bonobo screams and uh, they're scared. Well, if that happened with chimpanzees, and that's happened to me many times accidentally, you're closing a door, it makes a strange noise, the chimpanzee baby screams. Well, the mom is going to come, as you'd expect, and grab the baby and comfort the baby. That is not what happens with bonobos. You close the door, it makes a little funny noise, the baby screams, everybody comes. The whole group arrives because nobody messes with a baby bonobo. Even if it's not my baby, I'm coming. And so that is totally different. And one of the things we've been able to demonstrate uh, in, a, in um, sort of a preliminary way is that, um, and to counter something you said a little bit, um, uh, what we have argued is actually uh, bonobos are not female dominated. Um, they are baby dominant. And what, and what we mean by that is nobody had ever actually measured the dominant status of baby bonobos, because why would you? Because in all of their studies, when you study hierarchy, uh, babies don't have rank. I mean, they're just on their mom. They don't do anything. But when we measured the rank of the babies, uh, it ends up that baby bonobos were some of the highest ranking members of the group. Um, and, and everyone, is, and remember, this is a species where there's no infanticide. It's one of the only primate species where no infanticide has ever been observed. And the reason is because if a baby's in trouble, it's not just mom that's coming. It's everybody. So if you are a big male who is, you know, twice as big as any female, or not twice as big, but 20% as big as any female, and, that, and you scare that baby, you better run. You better run as fast as you can. And, and so the, so they're baby dominant. And, and the reason that that's an important distinction, there's been a lot of debate in the literature because in, in the biological sense, I think in a popular sense, it's okay to talk about females being uh, dominant in bonobos um, because there's no alpha male. So doesn't that mean the females are dominant? Um, uh, but technically no, because hyenas, lemurs are female dominant. And in those species, every female is dominant over every male in those species. And it ends up that those females are masculinized. They become more male-like. Even their genitalia is changed, it's altered. Um, and they become larger and more, and, and basically no male is able to uh, take on uh, a female in a female dominated species. That is not the case in bonobos. Bonobos use coalitionary power. Female bonobos are not larger than male bonobos, so they don't meet a lot of the criteria of female dominance. And it's very difficult when you do careful observation to point out one female that is the one dominant female. It can be done, it can be done, but the difference between uh, the alpha female who might be called alpha and the next females, it's marginal whereas in other primate species the difference would be really large and it'd be really clear who's alpha so um that's why we've made the argument for fun and also based on some data that bonobos actually have a completely unique system of being baby dominant wow that no i had not heard that at all so that's really interesting to hear i mean i guess because the from a media standpoint it, it's much more exciting to just talk about females having control of this thing and and you know, female female sex, and and all of that sort of dominates the the popular media. Well, well when you it's it, yeah, it's fun. It's fun for you to say that because when I went to Congo with Anderson Cooper, uh, we did a sixty minute piece on Loli Albonobo, and um, uh, you know, to look at the work there with the orphan bonobos, 
and talk about you know their conservation status and then our research um he obviously wanted to talk about what everybody knows about is their uh sociosexual behavior or their sex sexual behavior um and i had to stop and tell him and he was good about it i said anderson look I know that that's what your audience is interested in and what you want to talk about because you know that eyeballs will be glued to the screen. But I think that if, and, and I, I said this to myself, I think if the bonobos knew that that's what our species was interested in, they would think we were super immature given that they're the only ape species that doesn't murder. Like, how can that be the thing we are always focused on when they never kill each other? So, so we've really been focused on um, uh, how is it that their psychology allows them to to escape the murderous cycle we see in chimpanzees, we see in in, in uh, humans, um, and of course their sociosexual behavior is a, is part of that. But I think it's a byproduct of the selection for friendliness. It's so what I'm trying to say is it's part of the story. It's an interesting part of the story, but it's not the story. Um, and, 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 and so, uh, it is true that, um, and I think it's what you were originally alluding to that baby bonobos, for instance, they're already having a lot of sociosexual behavior that you only observe in chimpanzees during adolescence for the first time. So literally baby bonobos are born, uh, ready to rub their genitals against someone else's genitals. If there's a social stressor in the environment, and we think that that releases oxytocin and um, oxytocin is a neural hormone that is a, um, it's an antagonist to cortisol or corticosteroids that are stressors. And so you get really stressed about a social situation, you rub genitals, it releases oxytocin, it re reduces that stress. Thanks to the friend that you just, you know, helped reduce their stress too, you bond, no aggression. Um, and so one of the other important things is a lot of people, when you talk about, um, you know, I like to joke that bonobos are trisexual. They'll try anything sexual. I, I've seen things I didn't know were possible. Um, uh, anything with humans, you name, I've probably seen it with bonobos. Uh, and then I've seen a lot of things I hadn't seen with humans. Um, and so um, you think with that kind of uh, portfolio um, that, you know, oh, it's all about sex. But really what they're doing is they're, it's, it's like fraudage. They're rubbing genitals. Um, most of what they're doing that's sort of eye popping is they're rubbing genitals. It's not, um, that they're, um, having intercourse. Um, it's that they're rubbing genitals to probably, uh, it's like a self-soothing behavior. The reason I feel confident about that is I've seen bonobos in captivity I've worked with when they get stressed out because they're not doing well on a game that we're playing and they get upset because they're not doing well, uh, that they have to go self-soothe uh, and they will basically, they, they have to rub themselves on something. Um, uh, and so uh, it, it really is when they get stressed, they need to uh, have this releaser. If, if we could pivot back for just a second to the to this whole issue of aggression. So why, or maybe you would argue they, they are, but why haven't humans become across the board friendlier? If, if that's a success, if, if we see it in bonobos and I mean, certainly you, I, I suppose you could argue that in, in Western cultures and developed nations, I mean, we generally have access to all the food we want. We have access to, you know, many of the other things that we need. So the stress should be off to some degree. I, I mean, that might be a different case if you're in a refugee camp in Eastern Congo. Um, but why haven't 
do we see this evolution happening in humans or or, or there's some barriers there that that we either run into or we haven't recognized or yeah so let me let me do a u-shaped answer i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you the i'm gonna tell you the today answer and then go back in time that i think will take us back to today maybe it's a circle i don't know um so the, you asked me about today you know given western society we seem to be you know relative to history and prehistory pretty well off in terms of resources if the argument is that cost benefit favors friendliness you know why not in our why aren't our societies friendly look out there's so much that we could be upset about say relative to um uh you know our our we have resources uh relative to say other societies and you brought up eastern congo um i think the answer is yes i think uh it's just the time scale uh you know i think liberal democracies are incredibly friendly um and uh liberal democracies are designed really as the only um form of government uh, that has allowed for uh, large-scale societies to maintain hierarchy and egalitarian principles at the same time. Um, and no other so social organization does that. Um, uh, history is replete, and today we can see examples, uh, unfortunately, of a government organization where it's, uh, you know, sort of zero-sum, uh, some some uh, party or group or faction takes over another faction. Maybe it's a they resist, they rebel. It's you know we're gonna really do things different. And fast forward fifty years, and you have you know despotism uh, like you had when the revolution started. Um, and so liberal democracies are really the only form of government where you have competing groups that have a way to. Um, transition between power potentially peacefully uh and also where the party that's out of power still has a voice and still has power um so while you may have less power you never have no power and so um uh i would say that uh it's a return to pre-agricultural times where uh humans lived purely as um uh, egalitarian um and uh much more um, non-hierarchically, uh, and, and, but it also allows for large-scale uh, societies where there is some type of hierarchy um, that's almost necessary um, for the functioning of uh, groups of humans that are so large. So um, I would say yes, I would say we are friendlier uh, than uh, you, you could be if uh, there were other forms of government. Um, could we do better? Absolutely. Uh, so, all right, but you know, a lot came up with an answer about hunter-gatherers being egalitarian and um, uh, being cooperative and something must have happened during agriculture and industrialization as our groups got bigger um, that then led to hierarchy. What's that all about and what does that have to do with the extinct humans? So um, the argument is that friendliness in uh, humans, in our own species of humans, somehow that cost-benefit uh, payoff matrix changed, where unlike other species that it continued that sort of aggression and xenophobia uh, paid really high uh, dividends, um, and so friendliness sort of wasn't favored, the argument is at some point in the evolution of our species of human, that payoff started to change, and friendliness was favored in a way that it wasn't favored in the other species. And uh, 
Richard and I have thought a lot about this. Richard was, of course, the one who put this on this idea in the minds of all his students, myself included, and has written a brilliant book called The Goodness Paradox, um, and where he explains his answer to this. How do you explain the paradox of humans being the friendliest and the cruelest species on the planet? Um, and you know what I'm going to tell you now is my version of that, which borrows partly from his, but has some added um, whistles and bells. So. In the case of um, human evolution, the idea is there was a new type of friendliness that allowed for new forms of cooperation, like we have talked about in all the other species, uh, including uh, uh, dogs and bonobos. And in this case of our species, what I argue is that it was an attraction to a certain type of stranger that changed everything for humans uh, of our species. And that type of stranger is a stranger that we recognize as sharing a social identity with our own group. That individuals who we've never met before or we haven't formed a friendship with, we are attracted to them. We actually like strangers. We are xenophilic in the way that bonobos are xenophilic. As long as we recognize something about the stranger as being like our own group identity. Maybe they have the same language. Maybe they wear the same clothes. Maybe they eat the same food. Maybe they have the same type of tattoo. Maybe they wear their hair the same way. Something that we say, oh, I don't know you, but you're from my group. We like apes, we're from the same group. We didn't know each other before today and we instantly can cooperate, communicate and get along and be friends. This is completely unique to humans, what we're doing right here. Because bonobos, as xenophilic as they are, their attraction to strangers is not based on social identity. It's based on familiarity only. Am I familiar or unfamiliar to that other individual? If I'm unfamiliar, I'm attracted to you. But it has nothing to do with some shared, agreed group identity that makes me attracted to you. So when group identity appears on the, on the, on the, um, on the field of uh, evolution in, in uh, the life history or the evolutionary history of our lineage, it changes everything because it means that instead of interacting with a few dozen or hundred individuals in our lifetime, now we can interact with thousands of individuals. The neighbors that we can view as like us or even distant neighbors that are like us uh, that have some kind of shared social identity we see as like ourselves. We can share information, we can share innovation, we can share technologies, all sorts of things. And you have thousands of minds being bonded together and all of a sudden technology uh, explodes in a way that it does not for other species. So we can advance, innovate, uh, and solve all sorts of problems that other species can't because we're attracted to strangers who share our social identity. Is there a point where either the group gets too big or someone is too strange? And you're from Duke University and the Blue Devils. I mean, the, the Cameron Crazies. I mean, here's this group of people who share this passion for you know basketball within that stadium and they'll do anything and even though they've come from all these different places on the planet you know literally in some cases because you look across that audience at any Duke basketball game and you see faces of every description under the sun is there is there a group size that it becomes unmanageable to that that there's too many strangers so you're you're too strange yeah, how do you solve the paradox? I mean, you know, so you've got these folks, as you say, in Cameron, it's a great example where, you know, complete strangers from all over the world didn't grow up together and they share a social identity. They're Cameron crazies. They smash themselves together like penguins in the Antarctic, screaming like crazy 
uh, and they are friends forever and, you know, start businesses, have families together, whatever. Um, it's completely a unique feature of human psychology that strangers like that can feel like family based on a social identity, not on kinship, actual kinship. And so um, the thinking is that that amazing new type of friendliness points directly to the mechanism that leads to the worst of human nature and the origin of our terrible cruelty. And that is that we feel like family together with strangers who share our social identity. And just like any other organism, uh, I like to use a bear as a metaphor here where you've got a mama bear who loves their infants and their baby cubs and they'll do anything for them. And it's so wonderful to see them nurturing and caring, just like it's wonderful to see those any group of kids going crazy over their basketball team and, and see their wonderful friendships. That same care and concern and love for uh, what feels like family leads you to protect them if they feel threatened. And so uh, the same mechanism that leads a mama bear to risk her life or do horrendous harm to anything that might threaten her offspring is the same thing that happens as we start to feel about our social identity and those that share it with us as if it's family being threatened when there's something that might, uh, uh, you know, potentially harm uh, our social identity, those who share it and those that we care about and love as if they were our kin. And so any social identity that is seen to threaten our own then becomes uh, the problem. And then what's a second feature of this is that social identity is absolutely plastic. So obviously in the United States, in the context of the United States, we can't help but be worried about race. Um, and it dominates, you know, so much of uh, what we're thinking about and what we hope and aspire to, uh, you know, improve uh, and do better with. Um, but if you back up and you look at just humans, uh, it can be anything. It's not race. Uh, race is uh, socially constructed, just like any other social construction. Um, you know, we, we tell the story uh, in our uh, book uh, within Central Africa. Uh, if we look on, uh, you know, in Central Africa, there's uh, the pygmies who are hunter-gatherers. Um, uh, living in the Turi forest, they've, they have been, you know, horrendously uh, discriminated against. Um, and they are viewed as a different race. Um, and so anything can be socially constructed. Uh, if it's in the Australian context, it would be Aboriginals and, you know, Western, uh, you know, uh, you know, the Australians who colonized Australia in, in Asia, uh, you know, you could talk about, um, you know, all sorts of different genocides against different people. So it's not uh, just that race is the only um, uh, thing. It's it just happens to be one of the worst, uh, especially in the U.S. context. So. So any, any social identity socially constructed is something that uh, humans can use as this social identity. Um, and so the same thing that allows for crazy amounts of friendliness, cooperation, innovation can, when it, we feel threatened, lead to the most horrific cruelty. Um, and so not only does it explain survival of friendliness as a secret to our success, but it also explains the paradox of why we have this horrible capability to do terrible things to other human beings. So when you walk into Cameron and you see all those people together, that must give you hope about us as a species. Well, you know, then the fact that we can be together and you know we can 
there there are mechanisms which i guess step beyond uh all those those preconstructed you know social you know race and the way you look and the clothes you wear and well you know it's funny i if i i've never really you know talked about that with anybody but i grew up as a a diehard georgia tech fan um and if you grew up as a long-suffering georgia tech fan you don't like duke very much and so uh especially duke basketball and so when i came to duke it was very hard for me to uh you know be excited about duke uh and and so what happened is you form friendships uh, you become invested in the community. Uh, and so these strangers that have a different social identity to your own, you start to then, uh, you know, absorb and, uh, care about that social identity as if it was your own. Uh, and so now, yes, I love the Cameron Crazies and Duke in a way that, you know, would not have been possible because of friendships. And, uh, that's what gives me hope is there's great science showing that cross group friendships across different social identities really can form bridges and prevent the worst of what humans are capable of. And it, that social identities are socially constructed and that they, there are ways to, to shift them around. Um, as long as we're aware that uh, this feature of human psychology is not going to go away. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today on Talking Apes. I uh, really appreciate it. Maybe you can just quickly, for those who want to know more about bonobos and what's going on at, at Lola, uh, where can they find that? You said there was a new website. Yeah, uh, bonobos.org. Uh, if you go to bonobos.org, uh, you can find everything out about uh, Lola. You can uh, find the Twitter uh, handle. You can uh, follow uh, Lola Yabonobo on Facebook, too. There are amazing videos and stories, and what an incredible organization. And it's hard not to fall in love with bonobos. Uh, and uh, I try every day to be a better bonobo male. So I hope that inspires uh, others, too. And on that note, I guess we'll say goodbye. And thank you again so very much for uh, being on Talking Apes. I want to thank Dr. Brian Hare once again for sharing this amazing hour with us. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people, and with conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the forefront of what's happening with our wild ape cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas for future podcasts, you can email us at media at globio.org. That's media at G-L-O-B-I-O dot org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her work behind the scenes on another great episode. And finally, I'd like to thank you for your support gives apes a voice. Help share their voice by making a tax-deductible donation at globio.org. Until next time, I'm Jerry Ellis, and you've been listening to Talking Apes.